Hello and welcome to Broad Appeal, the podcast that normally looks back at female-driven films from not so distant past. I'm Sean. And I'm Brian. How you doing, Brian? Oh, Sean, I'm full of that festive spirit. Ah, yes. And how about you? The festive life force. Yeah, the life force is pumping through me festively. And you? I'm spirit cooking right here, right now, and super as always. Uh, I noticed that our recording studio is a little bit more crowded than usual. Ta-da! It's Alan Flanagan, who you may remember, listeners, and indeed Brian, from <laughs> our Broad Appeal Season 1 episode, Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion. Hello, Alan. Hello, Sean. Hello, Brian. Welcome back to the studio, to the compound. How did you get in? Um, I, I just just about crammed into this, to this, 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 this tiny confines, and we're all... We're end-to-end greased up just trying to fit it. Yeah, it's amazing those um, fingerprint sensors that we've added. The iris door that kind of opens as you you walk through. Theresa May was very helpful in terms of getting those set up for us. This uh, this studio. So Sean, I think everyone's on tenterhooks wondering why has Alan returned? What is the film going to be? Why have you brought me here? Yeah, what, what is this all about? Well, Brian, as you know, this is the sixth episode in our mini-series Broad Appeal to Male Gaze, in which we are looking at the broad spectrum of maleness, masculinity, male identity, masculinity. Did I say that already? You did, but you've got masculine on the brain. I mean, sandwiched between me and Alan, it's hard to think of anything else. It's a testosterone shit show. Is it? Is it? <laughs> I mean, I can't breathe because there's so much testosterone. What's the film, Sean? Bring that (laughs) back. Today's film is an Irish film. That's partly why we have brought Alan here today. It is 2005's Breakfast on Pluto, based on the novel by Patrick McCabe and directed by Neil Jordan. Alan and I were chatting before. We know almost nothing about this film or the novel it's based on, except that it stars Killian Murphy. Murphy. I know that there's a... He possibly wears a hat at one point and twirls in a field. I think that's he was at the height of my knowledge. Yeah. So that's the wind that shakes the barley. That's okay. the twirling. Is. <laughs> yeah. Well, so Killian Murphy, the lovely, sinuous, beautiful Killian Murphy. I I like him as a as a performer. I think he's beautiful as a man. I don't know anything about this movie. So Breakfast on Pluto is about a young person who goes by the moniker of Kitten. Now, Kitten, we would say in modern parlance, is a transgendered person. But in Irish parlance, the 1970s, he's God knows what. <laughs> in many ways, Breakfast on Pluto kind of has much of the tropes of typical Irish cinema in the sense that it's about family, society, identity, religion, sexual repression. This is about one person's journey from their small town to the origins of who they are and where they came from. And the location is a fictional border town uh, somewhere between Monaghan and Tyrone. So so help us, for those who don't know this landscape, the kind of area that we're going to see in the film. Like, is it similar to the type of place you would have grown up? Yes and no. Okay, so the funny thing about the non-important counties of Ireland... <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> is that they kind of have a look about them and the, the level of quaintness, I think, just differs from place to place. Like, you have bog-standard Irish town of, like, minimum whimsy, minimum quaintness, and then you have more on the quaint barometer and whimsy scale. Irish, to me, is kind of the, the, the typical small town with the main street. Maybe there's a horse walking down it. But it's not that kind of prettified like Ireland that you see and that does exist and is true and real but to yeah. me Ireland is the kind of shitty small town yeah. so so not like the kind that I would be familiar with from an Irish spring soap commercial for instance well you know those places do exist but the thing is you and I are from are from the Midlands and the Midlands is really flat and I do think when you get to see Irishness or Ireland at least presented on screen generally you get a few more hills you get a few mm. more forests like we're from a very green wooded area but it's very flat and it's just not very cinematic. So the stories are never told from an obvious perspective. Except Eat the Peach. Have you seen that? No. It's about um, <laughs> about the Wall of Death in Granard. Do you know the wall, the wall of, of death? The Wall of Death is that motorcycle in a kind of... Uh, oh yeah, and you, you, climb, you climb the, the wall with speed. Yeah, oh, I saw one of those in Las Vegas once. Yeah. Written by a Janet Jackson uh, impersonator. Oh, Coco well, Montrese, I... perhaps. <laughs> 
But the thing about The Wall of Death in Granard is that's the only depiction of actual Longford in cinema. And even we forget about that. And it's, it's, it doesn't have, like, it's not what we're known for our wallet. No. <laughs> so, okay. So you, you've, you've, <laughs> that makes <laughs> tale. <laughs> so this film is set in the 1970s with a young queer person growing up and questioning their identity. Dare I say, the two of you were young, burgeoning queers in some place. Not, 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 too, not too far, a flat town where you were erecting yourselves. Yeah. Now, I'm assuming there's an element about the Troubles and the IRA. Is that correct, Sean? Yes. Now, I should correct by saying that even though Monaghan is one of the non-counties as such, because it borders Northern Ireland, it suddenly becomes a lot more interesting. Okay, because it gives it, what, like a political charge? Yeah, it gives it a political charge. It like I think there's an element as well of being on a border. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. probably lends itself to telling a story about someone who's on the border of something. Of, of something yeah. else. The thing about the northern counties in the Republic was that they were often places where IRA people would hang out in if they were from Ulster, where they kind of would, would escape to. Like, the thing is, the British soldiers couldn't just walk into the Republic. That's not how it worked. So if you were an IRA person or involved in IRA activities, occasionally you you dip down into the Dips out of the And would you be allowed to do that? Yeah, yeah, Easily. I don't know about pre-Good Friday Agreement, but everybody in Northern Ireland either has a British passport or an Irish passport. You're given a choice of either of them by birth. Uh, Shout out to my ex-boyfriend, Charles Gregory, who's not listening, who who may or may not have had sex with Alan before. <laughs> we can edit that out. Sure. Yes, because uh, it led to a hilarious. Oh, yeah, a hilarious anecdote. Can we say that everyone may or may no, no. not have had okay. sex with Alan before? I'm a Schrodinger's cat. Like, there's a dick in the box. So shout out to my friend Gerald Gregory, uh, who's from the town, the border town cross with Lennon. When he was uh, old enough to get a passport, he was offered the choice of a British passport or an Irish passport. Dad said to him, "You know, you can choose any either one you want, but if you get the Irish one, I'll pay for it." And I think that is uh, a lot of the attitude of many of the people up there. It's interesting what you're saying, because it's like this notion that you have to define yourself in this binary way, in one category or the other, which, as Alan was just implying, is is a similar notion to how we think of gender. Especially that, that idea that you get passed down this idea that you are one or the other. Yeah, mm-hmm. and Northern Ireland is all about binaries. Catholic what's or that, Protestant. What's that word that I learned recently? Fenian. You're a Fenian or a Teig, is that right? I think so, yeah. Well. You're a Fenian or a Teig, a Catholic or a Protestant, you're a, a Brit or a Mick. Interesting. Jet or a shark. <laughs> uh... Come on, Brian. Sperm to worm, <laughs> womb to tomb. Now you're talking my language. Yeah. So, boys, when you were growing up in the Republic, how old were you when the Good Friday Agreements were signed? Well, so you were born in 86. I'm 86, so I was 12, and you were... I would have been 9. 9. So, so do you have a conscious memory of the charged political climate? I remember a lot of what was happening then, but it very much felt like, to me, it was happening in another country, in another part of the world. That time in Irish history, it did not bleed south of the border. So we remember things... Like like the Oma bombing being a, like yeah. a big big one, which yeah. um, which turned the tide a lot. Oh, yeah. But it was at a distance. Yet these old ideas, which were very very like still drummed into you, the idea that the Brits are bad, the Protestants are bad, the United Ireland all those kind of things. But they were all just kind of concepts and ideas, and they never overlapped with what was happening in the north, which was these terrorists who were killing people. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of a weird time where our generation were looking askance at this kind of thing in a way that our parents' generation hadn't necessarily questioned it because maybe it had been more legitimate mm-hmm. in their time. I think maybe my parents just kind of didn't want to engage so much because so much of the north and Northern Ireland was complicated and complex and deeply, deeply, deeply depressing. Mm-hmm. That much of it was never explained to me properly. I'm not saying it's their fault, but I felt that same thing in school as well. Yeah. I didn't understand that, okay, so the IRA are blowing things up and they're bad. And then you have the UVF who are blowing things up and they're bad. So how do you know who to blow up or not to blow up? Like, these are the things I ask. Well, when in doubt, blow up. Yeah. <laughs> the, the confusion, and it's like, in our town, we've got this church here, and we've got this church here, and they both look kind of similar, but we can't go to that church, although sometimes we do, because... You went to a Protestant church? Sometimes. Sean, because what were you how doing? am I with you? The one, the one down with the girls? No. <laughs> my mother, okay, <laughs> likes to go to that to ecumenical wayfarer, your mother. She was a non binary oh. <laughs> we would sometimes go to St. John's Church in Lanesford because there'd be a song you get to sing or something a 
singing service. Mm. Now, for all I know, my mother did it for, you know, religio-political reasons. There were Protestants who sang. Yeah. Wow. I remember distinctly sing singing Still Night and not Silent Night. We mean Still Anacht. Still Anacht, but in English. And I was thinking to myself, this is Silent Night. What are they going on about? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone. I have to explain something to you. But so in our town, one of our good family friends, who might be your friends in your family, the Johnsons. You know the Johnsons? No, no, no. Okay, so the Johnsons own the pharmacy in Lanesboro. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, you yeah. know Ronnie and all them, Joan and Ronnie. <laughs> Ronnie, and Joan and Ronnie. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it sounds like, sound like motorbike. The thing is, whenever we would go to St John's Church, they were there, and I thought that they just happened to be there when we were there. So I was in my mid-teens before I found out that the Johnsons were Protestant. <gasps> I was like. What? <laughs> so, God's name is going But like, it, it was, the thing is, it was so irrelevant. Mm. You know, it was so completely irrelevant. And yet up north, people were bombing each other over oh, these issues. Do you remember that? Do you remember the school? It was the Holy Cross. Oh, now, this yeah. is something that did permeate into our childhood. So, basically, this is a situation where the kids were trying to go to school. Yeah. But the area that they were walking through on the way to school was a Protestant area or a Catholic area? I don't this know. This thing is, it, be it became irrelevant which side you were on because it was all kind of awful. Yeah. But basically, because of the route that they were taking on the way to school, there would be like protests kind of alongside and really kind of vicious language and stuff like that. Like really, spitting at children. Yeah, and you're watching this going, it's literally just, they're just walking through this street in this part of town to get to their school. And this is the thing is that by the time we were growing up, it wasn't just that what was happening was morally questionable. It all just seemed kind of stupid. Why why in God's name? And we were kind of the generation going, is it not better for us to just leave Northern Ireland as it is if it makes everyone happier yeah. and safer? Yeah. Whereas our parents' generation, that was something that you couldn't really say as yeah. an option. And I, but I think my parents anyway, a lot of people of my parents' generation, they were sick of being kind of under the yoke of not just Catholicism, but loyalty to Ireland. Mm. Um, and it's just, it's tiring to be loyal to a country. Mm. And it's tiring to say that this is right and this is wrong. And it's easier just to say, live and let live. And if people are going to be dickheads to each other, then that's wrong, don't do that. Mm -hmm. And stop with the Fenian songs and stop with the constant... Brit bashing. Yes. And it just, you know, I, I've actually never put this together. I don't know why. Ireland is quite a young country. We're not even 100 years old yet. Right. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, your parents and certainly your grandparents' generations, that concept that you're saying about loyalty, mm. they're people for whom this new nation, yeah. Yeah. new newly free nation, had a meaning that's quite different than it meant now. Well, my grandfather was born in 1916, so technically he was born in Britain. Yes, yeah. as, was, as was my, my grandfather. But I'm saying, like, you're absolutely right. I, as, I, as I grapple with that, the, relate, the relationship to that political entity would be very different even just a few generations back, whereas you two grew up in an Ireland that eventually was welcomed into Europe and then had the pan-European currency, the, mm -hmm. the famous euro, which yeah, we all love so much. Riding high at the moment. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. But I mean, so you guys have lived through an immense amount of change in terms of what Irish identity means, both on a political level, a national level, but also this kind of level of morality and sexuality in relation to the church. Well, when we were both born, homosexuality was illegal. Yeah, until but divorce was also illegal. Yeah, right. Homosexuality preceded divorce by two years. Yeah. Oh, good. Can you believe? Uh, and abortion is still illegal as well. So, like, Al and I are not that old. We were born into a country that had no abortion, no, no divorce, and homosexuality was illegal and punishable by law. Just think, in many ways, I know it's not perfect, but how far we've come since it's, then. I think what's happened to Ireland in the past 20 years especially is a, is a lesson which I think everyone can take on a personal level, which is the joy and the transformative power of just being able to let go of stuff, mm. to let go of rules, to let go of assumptions, to let go of old wounds. And to just say, I know I'll never, uh, these wrongs will never be righted, but I just have to let go. And I think that's what Ireland did. And I think that our, our parents' generation have done very well. It's the idea that they were able to just let go of the church. Mm -hmm. They were able to say, yes, what was done to Northern Ireland was wrong when it happened. What was done to Ireland was wrong when it happened. But we're never going to right those wrongs. So mm -hmm. we just have to let go. I mean, you think of it this way. When you're a kid, it's one of those, they just don't know anything. Because you have to learn so much of this behaviour of who you're supposed to like and dislike and what you're supposed to believe and what they believe. And it's so complicated. To quote South Pacific, you've got to be carefully taught to be afraid of people whose skin is a different shade or people whose eyes are oddly made. You've got to be carefully taught. Oh. Yeah. That's from Os Harrison's. Oscar Hammerstein II, that great progressive... Can I ask, though, now you're in a situation with the recent referendum on gay marriage where the figurehead, at least as far as I understand, of like <laughs> the acceptance of that 
is an amazing, fabulous drag queen who's mm-hmm. sort of like a national hero. Do you want to bring some of our non-Irish listeners up to date on who I'm talking about? Well, I think some of them already know who she is. Well, yes. It's uh, Panty, Miss Panty, Panty, Miss Pandora Bliss, whatever name she goes by. Queen of Ireland. The Queen of Ireland, yeah. I would prefer if she was just president, because you know, I'm not a big fan of I think, but I, 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 I could see an Ireland electing Panty for presidency in about 20 years. The, the, but this is the thing about Ireland, it's such a strange oh, place. Oh, so weird. Because on the one hand, you have this kind of like, we're having a referendum on gay marriage, you're going to bring it in, which is behind a lot of other countries. But in the midst of it, um, a drag queen, which is on the far end of what people consider acceptable behaviour for men, right. um, and the acceptable face of homosexuality, right. becomes this kind of, this clarion call for everyone and becomes this adorable thing that people 9 to 90 are in love with. And it's, it's ridiculously a contradictory thing to have, yeah. is that, that mm-hmm. it's often the presentable face of homosexuality, etc., that becomes the, the poster of kids. And then suddenly it was this, no, this is man dressing up as a woman who's HIV positive, who has no intention of getting married anytime soon, yeah. but just says fair is fair, and also is, apart from being a drag queen and all those kind of things, is quintessentially Irish because of the way that she speaks. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's something about Irish people... We love a good speaker and we yeah. love someone who can tell a good story mm, and that is what yeah. she can do and that's why yeah. she became so popular and so central to the referendum and because it didn't become a case of the mask white people are sure. pushed to the front. Yeah. It was a case of, no, this is what gay people are and can be and also this is what queerness mm. can give to your country is the idea again of letting go of saying do yeah. what you want yeah this is one thing that kind of grinds my gears about ireland which we're, we're finally beginning to do is that we need to make our own rules and we need to stop following what our cousin next door britain <laughs> cousin <laughs> well uh emancipated parents, former oppressor former oppressor and sometimes you get those and yeah. an, an occasional lover yeah <laughs> It's like, we need to stop following whatever they do first, we do second. Well, certainly, I hope that doesn't involve leaving... No, that's not going to happen. We're not that dumb. But it, speaking of borders, <laughs> I mean... We're, not that, we're never going to do This that. question of the border is thrown up into huge relief now with this question of if Britain leaves the EU. Well, I can tell you one thing. I mean, when this goes out, it'll be a couple of weeks by the time you hear me saying this on the air... Politicians on both sides have said there will be no hard border. I think on the subject of the border and this idea of overlapping with the film, it's not a case of is this border right or is this border wrong? What really helped Ireland to heal itself was saying the border actually doesn't exist. And it's something that mm. is true of gender and true of race. It's just people realising the border isn't actually there. Yeah, the border is a construction. If you want the border, you'll make it. Mm. And most people don't want that. And... and Hey, let's go. Go. For this might sound like a tangent, okay? But because <laughs> we've been right on point. <laughs> oh, no, this is a real tangent. At the time of recording this podcast, it's been about a week since Pete Burns has died, who is the lead singer of Dead or Alive, famous for his uh, lips mostly, their lips, and his acerbic attitude. Apart from being a colourful character, he was on the 2006 series of Celebrity Big Brother. He's there with Jodie Marsh, and after being evicted from the Big Brother house, uh, she's talking to Davina, and she's giving like her critique of, of why Pete annoyed her and stuff, and she's like, you know, I can't really deal with people who are clearly trannies or cross-dressers or transvestites, just not admitting to it. I mean, look at you, you clearly are X, Y, and Z. The funny thing in, that sh- in this short 10 years is how we have become so much more relaxed with people defining their own terms in which they live their life. Mm. We're still living in an age of gay and straight and transgender or whatever, but even in the transgender movement you have the non-binary movement, you have people who identify as trans-masculine or whatever they want to say they are. We might have a few friends who we know have been with guys or been with girls and we're not so hard-lined to give them a term. Mm. And even in this 10 years, you can see this one person who's so... She needed to know what Pete was. That she created that borderline mm. of, of demanding to know where this border is. And this seemed like a musical cue yeah. that's about to come. She wanted to know where that borderline was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry. I, I just couldn't let that yeah, go that's by. Right. <laughs> um, now, earlier, Alan said that the Irish respond to a wonderful storyteller. So may I turn to Mr. Neil Jordan, who, of course, is, oh, the film. <laughs> is the of film course, the film. is the of film. course a wonderful storyteller. And as a young Irish American kid growing up outside of Boston, very Irish American city, I was aware of who Neil Jordan was. He's probably one of the most famous Irish directors whose work has kind of spread internationally. But he is a very weird and idiosyncratic storyteller in terms of being one of the leading lights of Irish cinema. 
Yeah, he makes a film like Michael Collins, which is kind of about your national hero, but he also makes, you know, movies coming from a Catholic country like The Crying Game or this film seem to me very oh, audio-idiosyncratic. I'm, I'm wondering, were Neil Jordan's movies the kinds of things that one would find on the shelf at, at Kiernan's. 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 <laughs> our new listeners, tell them what Kiernan's, Kiernan's okay. is. Let's all say Kiernan's one more time. Kiernan's. Kiernan's. <laughs> so Kiernan's was the famous, famous video shop mm-hmm. in Lanesborough County, Longford, the rival of Riazzi's, which Riazzi's I was, was there a Protestant Catholic split no, there? No, Italian-Irish. Oh, Italian-Irish. Mm. <laughs> See, I'm right there on that borderline. <laughs> Carry on. Where are you, Brian? On the borderline. Very See, that was like Patti LuPone, my yeah. version. <laughs> Whereas mine is like shrill and, and, and limited, and so like, like Madonna herself. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, to answer this question, yes. Now, the reason I saw Breakfast on Pluto was I went with my mother and my sister on a typical, ordinary Wednesday or Tuesday afternoon. A weekday, in fact. My, my mother said... Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> it is pretty much always a weekday. <laughs> Very common. Very common. But what I mean is, in some ways, Neil Jordan films are kind of events, or at least they were in my estimation, because with a Neil Jordan film, you knew A, it's credible, B, there's money behind it, and C, an international audience will see it in some way. Now, maybe not so much with the Byzantium and Ondine and those ones recently, but he still gets things made. Going to see Breakfast on Pluto seemed perfectly natural that I'd go and see it with my mum and sister. We saw it in the cinema. We saw it in the cinema. Even though it was a film about strange trans characters. Yeah, Neil Jordan film with a great cast. Killian Murphy is the lead. You have future Academy Award nominee Ruth Negga. We hope. She will be, yeah, for a film called Loving. Uh, Liam Neeson is in it. Stephen Ray is in it. Even Brian Ferry from Roxy Music is in it. Oh. And um, other people as well. <laughs> and so, the rest. Yeah, can, can I ask though, so like, what do you guys think of Neil Jordan as an Irish voice? I mean, for most Americans, we really only know The Crying Game, which you and I recently rewatched, Sean. And that movie is a masterpiece. Like, when that movie was marketed and sold in America, it was like, ooh, this twist. The twist having genius a, marketing in the US. Yeah, but it's a twist that has a lot to do with gender identity. But actually, if you, guys, if you if you haven't recently seen the Crying Game, go back and watch that as well. What an amazing ahead yeah. of its time movie about oh, completely similar themes of how gender and political borders like parallel each other. The thing about the Crying Game is that in so many respects, it is still so progressive and provocative in the types of characters that are just the protagonists in it, both racial sexually and nationally. Do you think that's characteristic of Neil Jordan, the types of stories he looks to tell? On kind of the idea like that Neil Jordan has kind of a really diverse back catalogue. But I think that that's a more true telling of the story of Ireland. Are you meaning to say that waking Ned Divine is not, you know, the way that you guys grew up? Because well, that's what well, we thought. We, we grew up just calling it Waking Ned. Oh, waking. Was it called Waking Ned Divine? Waking Ned Divine. Uh, not sure why we went to see Waking Ned Divine. It was probably on St. Patrick's Day for I, I feel know. like it might have been that. Because like now that I think about Waking Ned sounds like 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 uh, like morning wood. <laughs> I've got, I've, got a, I've got a fierce case of waking Ned. Sorry to interrupt you, Alan, but you were saying that, that Neil Jordan's vision was perhaps more accurate than the picture postcard quiet man. I, I think, yeah, and I, th- I think what's important about Ireland is that we have a very small cinematic history. So it's good that one of our big directors is picking different parts of Irish history and different parts of the Irish identity because there isn't one version of it. When things like, oh, this is a very odd story to said Ireland in the 70s, well, yes, but no, because Ireland is made up of lots of different people and it is a diverse country in maybe not as racially diverse as a lot of places, but it's getting there. But it is diverse in its experiences and its opinions and... That's the classic Irish thing, is that we're a country of contradictions, is that we have 7,000 opinions in one brain. And also, it, uh, transgender recognition came before gay marriage Wow! with Dr. Lydia Foy, who was an amazing campaigner. Mm. Did you ever see her speak? She kind of is like everyone's aunt at some point. You know, this is our transgender figure uh, of, of, of like change in our country. Is she a trans woman? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she's a trans woman who seems like your ma'am. Yeah, I mean, my mom's not, as you know... Not your ma'am, one's one's ma'am. Brenda Fricker, for instance. No, she's more like someone's aunt, great aunt. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? There's an Irishness to even the most kind of booking the system. Like, I think, like, Panty, yeah. for instance, mm. is, has a lot in common with the old Irish idea, like yeah. the Shanaki, the, the, the old man in the pub who would tell the story. Sure. And I think that we see that Irishness and we go, okay, I'm not that interested in the shell, the thing on the outside that I'm looking at, but I can see that Irishness and that core That's feeling in, in, within. And Panty does represent a very kind of... She's both incredibly contemporary being a, a city girl who's, who's lived in different countries and had so many different experiences, while also having her roots firmly in Ballinrobe County, Mayo, and she never forgets it. And she has that amazing kind of weird voice as well. Mm-hmm. But she quintessentially has an Irish cadence and rhythm and sound to her. Mm. I'm wondering how I sound in this podcast now compared to the ones I just do with you, because Alan's in the room and we're having a bit of a... No, Irish. Irish. Old timey Irish marmalade. <laughs> so now I do want to get to the film, but of course we're going to have to retranslate all this conversation into Irish. So Alan, could you just start from the beginning? Aisha. <laughs> Alan Salam Domogus. Alan O'Flanagan. It's Misha. Uh, oh, what's homosexual? We're never going to get onto RTE with this, guys. Or no, what's the Irish one? They, oh, Chichi Carr. Yeah, we'll yeah. never get on there. Sulela. Uh, Sulela is a different eye, isn't it? Uh, no, a different look. Uh, no, a different way. Oh. Sul and Sul are pronounced in a way, but one has an extra eye in it. Okay. I like that. A different way. Yeah. And it seems like a nice segue into a film about a young person who maybe goes a different way from the people around him or her or them. Yes, it's time for... That was my attempt at a segue. How did that go? Pretty good. <laughs> it's, I think we're about to watch the uh, a very enjoyable Neil Jordan film, Breakfast on Pluto. Killian Murphy, Ruth Negga, great music, glam rock. Will there be tears? I don't know. Thank you for an amazing first half, guys. We'll see you in the second half. That's so long. Oh, I okay. so much so Okay. I'm not a boy, sir. I'm a girl. Oh, you're a girl? Yes. You can call me Patricia. That's my name, sir. Can I tell you a story? Patricia? Well, please do. Stories are what I love. You love stories? Love stories. Even more than mysteries. Don't do that, please. Very well, sir. I'm all ears. Once upon a time, there was a boy who never knew his father and mother. Oh, how sad. How unbearably sad was he, an unbearably sad little boy. He he didn't seem so. No, he laughed. He laughed a lot. Perhaps a kind of laughter that disguises tears. Tell the boy how much he loved him. Well, this can't be a true story. It can't be. Why not? Why could he not tell the boy how much he loved him? Because he didn't know how. He had the words for many things. But he he didn't have the words for that. There are only three words for that. They're easy to say. We've just returned to Earth from Pluto. I was taken back to my youth because when I saw this film, I was 16. At that one point in my adolescence, I had long hair down to my shoulders, which I dyed blonde with a bottle of Clairol. But it didn't really come out blonde. It was kind of... It wasn't ginger either. 
It was more like dirty red. <laughs> so did, did you have that haircut when you and your mother and sister went to see this film? I cannot remember. In the morning before school, I'd apply Max Factor's mascara, the one from Memoirs of Geisha. The ad for Max Factor's masterpiece mascara, that was it. Long after that film had gone, that ad was still doing the rounds on television. Do people not know what Memoirs of a Geisha was about when they were like, you can look like a geisha? (laughs) (laughs) A masterpiece mascara. A masterpiece film. Memoirs of a Geisha. Sorry, I realise that the the phrase, I'm blah blah blah, chief makeup artist for Memoirs of a Geisha, is implanted in my mind. It did run for ages. Yes, it did. Oh yeah, it crossed the ocean as well. Great. The work of Rob Marshall. Yes. Uh, So, you were dolled up in mascara, you had... Bleach blonde, long hair. I was also kind of growing a beard at the time. Like he was, he was, he was femme at the back and mask at the front. Yeah. And so, Shawnee, no wonder you were drawn to this film. Were you quite as brazen as Kitten is in your school life? I didn't break the rules. I didn't get myself into trouble because ultimately I realised there was no point. By my last couple of years in school, I was just dreaming of going to university. Do you know, I think being in your teens is a perfect time should you want to do a little bit of gender bending. But it's so funny how, like, now, we, the three of us, we're all very much men, you know? We are men. Oh, are yes, men. absolutely. Men on film. <laughs> so, Alan, you had not seen the film. Why don't you give us a rundown of the story as well? Yes, actually, I, 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 I'll, I'll blast us through it to Pluto, shall we? So, um, it stars Colleen Murphy, for the most part, as Kitten, who's a, a, a initially a boy from a small town in Cavan, which is a border county in Ireland. Yeah, not Monaghan, like I thought, so closer to Longford. Closer to Longford. Yes. And a hop, skip and a jump from our hometown. From a very young age, it's very clear about his feminine qualities is wanting to dress as a woman he also doesn't know who his mother is but he knows that she went to London so the film kind of balances a lot of the troubles and what's going on with that because his friends are involved in it but also his journey to London his attempt to kind of define himself as a woman and finding out his mother, mother's identity along the way and then he's realised some time ago that the priest in the town is his father it's quite a quite a positive in, yeah. in general. Like there's, there's, the church gets burned down and there's beatings and terrorism and bombing. But in general, it's quite a positive <laughs> look at general, those as issues. As far as as far as IRA assassinations, uh, burnt down churches, and beatings Gen- and trans- gay bashing can be, it's very yeah. delightful. It's, it's, got, a, it's got a great soundtrack. Yeah. Now, Sean, could you give us a little more details? Well, first of all, Kitten's real name is. Patrick takes on the name Kitten from Saint Kitchen. Now, hang on a second. Okay, now this could be either one of two things. Yeah. A complete fabrication. When you don't think there's a Saint Kitchen. Might not be. Or it's one of those weird Irish pagan saints. You know, the ones like Saint Movi and Saint A. I don't remember any... any Kachin, anyway. No, no. Any, any theologians in our I audience think send a letter? Might be a fake one. But the only thing about Irish saints is that there are all these like figures who obviously were pagan like sorcerers, <laughs> but they decided to turn into saints as well. So perhaps Kachin was one of those. I perhaps. But Sean, you were saying that you read part of the original book and that actually the character is named Patrick, but isn't called Kitten. No, it's called. Pussy. And so they clearly decided that wasn't suitable for the film. Didn't really translate for a mass audience. Structurally, it's as episodic as the film is, but Kitten is a much more sexually voracious... In the book. In the book. To describe the circumstances of Kitten's birth, the priest is become clear as the father, and his mother has been... The priest's housekeeper. What did you guys think of those early scenes of the movie where Kitten's still in school? And there's, there's a quite a great young boy actor who plays... Yeah. Patrick when he's really young. I'd kind of be curious about who that was. Yeah, he was very good. Um, what's what's interesting about it is, I think, touching on what Sean was saying, saying about the, the switch from Kitty to Pussy, is that, or from Pussy to Kitty, <laughs> is that it's, like, from the very beginning, he knows exactly, or she knows exactly who she is. Yeah. And there's not a huge amount of pushback that you would expect, as in it's kind of scandalous, but... It does feel like it's being sanitized in some ways, mm. but I don't think that's a bad thing. Because I think I think there's been so many stories about how awful it is to be trans and how terrible a life it is. Right, and how like, awful and grim Ireland was in the troubles. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think a bit of sunshine and a bit of a nice soundtrack and positive attitude is 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 needed. It's quite a sunny film. Like yeah. it literally begins with kitten as an adult later pushing a pram while cheery robins like fly around and poppy music is playing. This, this is, comes back to Irish storytelling and Irish resilience and whatever you want to say. Yeah. Is that during the Troubles, people got on with their lives. Like, I think presenting the fact that life goes on 
people still made friendships is important in the storytelling of this. It's important, I guess, to also talk about who those friendships were with. Kitten is sort of raised with a foster mother, so no one is really acknowledging the fact that he's the bastard child of the priest. They don't want to acknowledge him, so he's raised by this woman who he calls Harry Arse, right? And Kuntux. Kuntux. That was that was one of the things that I couldn't quite understand in the dialect. I said, no, no, but boys, what did they just say? And Sean repeated quite clearly to me, Cunt hooks, Brian. <laughs> Cunt hooks. Oh, yeah. But he kind of creates a surrogate family. Who are the main people there? Well, there is a young female called Charlie, who is played by Ruth Nega later on, and a young fellow with Down syndrome called Larry. Isn't Lawrence, it? Lawrence, yeah. yeah. And uh, and then their friend Irwin, is he there? He's there yeah, as a child. Yeah, he's there from well. the beginning. So they're kind of this motley crew. Well, particularly because, although it's never really explained why, but Charlie is non-white. She's a mixed race mm-hmm. person of, of some kind. Like, I, up, like once it's mentioned. Which again, I quite like that it's yeah. belaboured. Oh, isn't it terrible? But it is interesting because there's these kind of marginalised figures. Uh, exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, in the complexities of Irish life, um, having a mixed-race child was not completely unheard of, but it was something that wasn't talked about very much. Sure. In terms of conception and everything else that goes with that kind of thing. <laughs> well <Great>. said. Well, <laughs> what a so, sentence. so dramatic. <laughs> Anyway, uh, okay. So Kitten's having trouble in school. Like Kitten wants to leave PE class and go join Home Ec and is sewing amazing outfits. Um, Costumes are phenomenal. Yeah, I actually I didn't write down the name of the costume designer. It was an Irish Emer, I think Emer Ni Whale something. And it's not just like the fabulous outfits that um, Kitten wears. It's also all the lovely 70s details of all the characters yeah. I thought were really... I love the location shooting as well. Yeah. I don't know what town that was. It did give a like a vibrancy to 1970s Ireland that I think I didn't realise was there. And it obviously yeah. was. Like you were saying earlier that, that it was a time when we were experiencing the idea of being teenagers and going out and listening to music and having an identity through culture that's your own and is not belonging to adults. And that, that, that Ireland was going through as well as being in the middle of the Troubles, was also going through this fun, loving, cut-loose kind of period with its young people. I think that was interesting. Well, all my parents' stories, you know, the wild ones, are all from the 70s rather than the 80s. I guess to kind of push the story forward, like, Kitten kind of has to leave school and leave the town. And if I remember correctly, there's a series of kind of things that bring scandal, but the biggest one is when she... I'm going to use she. I'm just going to use she. Yeah, that's stupid yeah. she, yeah. So she goes into the confessional because she's kind of got this notion through a letter that's come in the post that the priest is her father and sort of confronts him and he bursts out of the confessional box in the middle of mass and Kitten's like, this is it. I can't, I can't take this anymore, mm. right? And so goes off and runs away and joins up with a bunch of motorcycle riding glam rockers called the the bikers were a separate yeah okay group. first it's with a bike the bikers who give essentially the exact same metaphorical description that alan gave in the first half about the borders isn't it yes the the only borders between what's behind you and what's in front of you what's in your past and what's ahead of you yeah and then from there a relationship begins with i think it was the, the their song was wigwam something it was all wigwam bam that one yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was a, it was a Shall we say a Native American themed? <laughs> yes, they, they're called. I think it's. I think it's Billy Hatchet and the Tomahawks. Billy Hatchet and the Tomahawks, or no, the, the Mohawks. The Mohawks. Yes. yes. So, what did you guys think of that section of the film? Who is that playing? That Billy? was Gavin Friday. Gavin Friday is a mm, singer, musician, person from, from from an Irish band. I don't know. I'm sorry. Uh, sorry, Gavin, if you're listening. Sorry, uh, Gavin. It's slipped from John. You're just not famous enough. But that that's kind of. I suppose that's crucial from the point of view of being Kitty's first relationship. Yeah. It's never quite clear if it's consummated or yeah, what exactly yeah. happens there, but first of all, Kitty joins the band as a, as a squaw to join them on stage. <laughs> then there is some throwing of cans and the band kick kick her out, but he bequeaths her his mother's caravan as a gift, but of course it's not necessarily a gift, it's where the IRA are hiding guns. Yeah. yeah. Gun running, as they say. Yeah. Does Kitty... Kitten. Kitten, sorry. Does Kitten ever kiss anyone? Um, I read this on the Wikipedia page. I think there's a kiss on the lips slightly because it's when you were contrasting the book to the film. I didn't notice it. There's a lot of nuzzling, shall we say, that in the transfer from pussy to kitten, there's a lot of nuzzling. Yeah. It's quite sexy the way that Billy, like, 
sings to Kitten first, with the first time Kitten goes to the concert, it's like singing and like yeah. seducing her. And then he kind of says something like, oh, I'd invite you back to the hotel, but the boys in the band would think of it the wrong way. So by like putting her off in the caravan, he's like secluding her to himself in this kind of far off domestic mm-hmm. space where she can be put up. And she's quite happy to be like a happy housewife, except for those damn IRA rifles that are hidden in the floorboards. Oh, deal breaker, isn't it? Yeah. So from there, what the kind of the big spur onwards is basically there's a, a bomb goes off in the hometown and yeah. kills Lawrence, their childhood oh, friend. Yeah, that's so sad. Incredibly sad. And from there, Kitty dumps all the guns into the ocean. She's almost killed by two IRA guys, but they decide that she's not worth the energy. There's a mixture of weird pity and fear where they're kind of they don't want to kill her because well, like, there was a, there was a memorable line kitten so she's lied to them and said oh the the guns are buried somewhere in the in the grounds around the caravan and they're digging holes and then they basically throw her into the hole and they look like they're going to shoot her but they're not doing it she says what's wrong with killing a nancy boy you kill everybody else don't you surely quite... you can spare a bullet between the two of you yeah um, and i think that that's i found it hard at times to break into kittenness uh, to feel her point of view that bit I did where she's clearly kind of egging them on to kill her and I was like yeah okay, I can see her point of view is because for a lot of the film I think that she feels like she's near the end of her life yeah but there's bits where you're like she's just expecting to die or waiting yeah. to die or there's something about that but that's what spurs her to leave for good yeah. to London you're right though about that thing about that desperation She's a character who, from her earliest school days, but then increasingly, just takes risks. Mm-hmm. Almost because she thinks, well, what have I got to lose? It seems like she, whether it's a priest or an IRA gunman or anybody, she's mm-hmm. just confident to, like, brazenly speak her mind and step into harm's way. And I think, I think it's something that comes up that when they're talking about Breakfast on Pluto. They talk about the idea of being able to drift up there and be not present. I think there's an element of that in how... Kitten approaches the world is that she can kind of check out of her fears and check out of her pains and just live up here as opposed yeah. to living in what's happening to her. She has this desire or need or ability to just be above what's happening to her and therefore not fear the risk. Like psychologically disassociate almost. Exactly, yeah. Um, what did you guys think? Because we talked a lot about politics in the first half. Like, essentially, Kitten would have been happy living in that caravan as the happy housewife of Billy, but... The IRA and the Troubles really intervenes and pushes her out into the wider world, into London. Mm-hmm. What did you guys think in general about the kind of presence of the Troubles and the IRA as an element in the story? Uh, well, I thought it was, I mean, I thought it was great. When you're telling the story of Anglo-Irish relations in the 1970s, there's a background that will always take a kind of a geopolitical stance about how Irish people were viewed in a society where they were feared and loathed. Mm. And it's so funny how time, in some ways, has moved on so fast. You know, you remember certain atrocities or incidents, but when it comes to the Irish in London... They're not viewed with suspicion. We're not viewed at all, at all, at all. And I think that's partly because the nature of the way things have gone in which... You know, today, if we're talking about, like, radical Islamic fundamentalism uh, and the terrorism that goes with that, and the thing about the Irish was that, in many ways, a bit like the the Soviets, you know, the Soviet threat of integrating and being one of you. and Kind of being like a sleeper agent amongst us. So I think in some ways there was more of a paranoia back in that time and just more of a palpable fear in the the narrative of the recent years. On that point, this is straying even further from the, the film, but... People have such short memories mm. that everyone's like, everyone's now like, oh, the Irish, they're great, they're lovely. And it's like, but do you not remember that 30 years ago you feared us and mistrusted us? And, yeah. And people seem to forget that that's exactly the way people are getting about Muslims now. Yeah. Like, do you not remember that this... And actually, and, and actually probably many more people died in IRA. Um, yeah, and it was more, much more... The thing about the IRA bombs, just to clarify, was that there usually wasn't that many casualties because sure. they would they would do warnings and people would be evacuated. Right. But in terms of sheer destruction, yeah. there was much, much more. I mean, mm-hmm. those, we have the IRA to thank for such amazing pieces of architecture, such as the Gherkin, for example. Well, thank you, John. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like that you, you go out to the city of London and the evidence of what the IRA did is in all the buildings that are there now. Yeah. So um, once Kitten arrives in London... That middle part of the film is maybe the baggiest in terms of plot. However, she basically meets every memorable Irish character actor who's ever been, right? No. Brendan Gleeson, 
Stephen Ray. Ray. They're both very good. Any any kind of highlights? Essentially, she's supposed to be looking for her mother, mm-hmm. who's been swallowed up in the city of London. So she, her first kind of encounter with the the, the doyens of Irish cinema is Brendan Gleeson, who is playing a womble. <laughs> And discovers uh, discovers a uh, kitten sleeping in one of the Womble set tents in a park. Immediately hires her. Immediately she starts to dance <laughs> and to sing. Hi- like it was like an old Hollywood. Like, kind of well, I can't dance. Of course you can. Let me yeah. show you like this. In, in like the overall quality of the film it's saggy in that it doesn't bring anything to the film but I would not take back those five or ten minutes for anything because okay. Brendan Gleeson is insane he yeah. gets attacked eventually he it's seems to dislike his Womble supervisor no he doesn't want to use the mallet and so when the supervisor tries to get him to use the mallet he says I don't use the mallet and then he like throws the croquet <laughs> mallet at his boss and yeah. gets fired from Wombleland or whatever it's I called. wonder where that really was filmed so I'm guessing Wimbledon on location could have been but uh, they're great suits then Kitten ends up with Stephen Ray. It's also interesting, Kitten seems to be attracted to men in various forms of showbiz and play acting mm. because Stephen Ray... Oh, it, it recurs constantly. That yeah. there's, there's, she's attracted to performance, any, yeah. anything like that. Stephen Ray is a magician named Bertie, the, or the amazing Albert, as he yes. goes by on stage. You seem to be particularly drawn to Stephen Ray's performance here. I liked him a lot. I mean, it's, it's nice that he played kind of out of character in some ways. This sort well, of he's not Irish, plummy <laughs> British accent, yeah. Yeah, I and he was he was a lovable character, although I think it's worth pointing out that he he does his hip, hypnosis act in which he he kind of conjures up Kitten's mother and every uh, every other person in the audience, and I think it's good to show that these people are complex in the sense that Kitten finds someone who wants to take care of her, yeah. But it actually, there's a, quite an exploitative element in in you know conjuring up someone's uh, trauma every night for laughs and spectacles so I think Bertie had a kind of a I don't know unappealing aspect because Kitten's running around the audience kind of screaming you're my mommy yeah Yeah. Yeah. which is funny but also disturbing but I think that's that's kind of a lot about of her character because I think earlier in the film she's constantly going about how things are so serious so serious so serious it's not to do with what's happening because she could, she can plumb the depths of what horrible things are happening, but they can never be serious because she can never take anything seriously. Yeah. But that's just taking something that's horrible instead of hiding it. Yeah. You just play it for yeah. a laugh. Yeah. That's another way of defending yourself from it. Um, Kitten's two friends, right, Charlie and Irwin, they they seem to be able to find her. I'm not yeah. quite sure how. And, and drag her out of this situation with the magician. And that's where we all yeah. sort of thought at this point, oh, the movie must be drawing near its conclusion, mm-hmm. and there's quite a lot more left. Would you guys agree with me that this last bit of the film actually is where the plot gets the it's most co- interesting? It's cohesive and coherent, and stuff that has come up at the beginning comes up at the, the end. Uh, so Charlie and Irwin are over in London because it seems like Irwin has some meetings with some uh, IRA folk. Charlie is also there secretly because she wants to have an abortion and she hasn't told Erwin that she's pregnant but when she goes to the uh, abortion clinic Kitten says to her it's going to be a disaster the baby's going to be a disaster just like me and that kind of causes her to change her mind thinking well I love you and you're a disaster Charlie decides to keep the baby and heads back home and this was interesting because the bit that comes right after that Kitten gets caught up in a bombing in a nightclub are we meant to think that Erwin or at least Erwin's associates like that was the plot that Erwin was involved in planting that bomb in the nightclub so we see Erwin bringing a package to some IRA men and then shortly afterwards Kitten is caught in a bombing I think they're meant to be connected but further they weren't because it seems so unlikely but Kitten is caught up in a bombing and because she is there and she's Irish and she's weird for want of a better term (laughs) yeah Um, I love the the headlines are like cross-dressing killer (laughs) Uh, so she's dragged in for interrogation in what is probably my favourite scene in the film it takes this turn where she's no longer in her fabulous outfits she's just in a pair of trousers and a, a white vest and she's being beaten up horribly by one officer trying to get her to confess to what she didn't do. Yeah. Um, but that's where you see her ability to check out, which is yeah. also about being on Pluto and being above everything. And at one point she's being left alone and she starts approaching the officer who's been beating her up because she doesn't care. She can't feel it. Yeah. And it's it's really sad because you see maybe how psychologically gone she is in certain ways in that scene. Like she, she overwhelms them with her personality, basically. Yeah. To the point where they just give up. And and they get softened and kind of there's that tender moment where the younger inspector kind of lifts her up and takes her off into the cell and she says something like, if I weren't a transvestite terrorist, would you marry me? And they're just so weirded out by the singular presence. And then when they have to release her because they realize she probably had nothing to do with 
this bombing. She wants to stay in the prison cell because it's a place that she has comfort and security. How did you feel about that, Sean? It's a very interesting psychological yeah, mode. Yeah, I'm, I'm just listening really to the both of you describe it so eloquently. Um, <laughs> Thank you. He's disassociating himself. He's up on, <laughs> is, up on Pluto. He is gnawing on some delicious pancakes somewhere past <laughs> Neptune. So there are some plot contrivances which basically end up with Kitten starts walking the streets and is perhaps in a bit of trouble, you know, as any sex worker might be. We assume she's a sex worker because, of course, we don't see any. Yeah, yeah. So she then gets conveniently put into a very progressive co-op run by five sex workers, which is fascinating because they're still not even... Those girls aren't even prostitutes, are they? They just perform in these fascinating, like windowed rooms it's where a peep show yeah, situation. men um, pay to watch through the window while they do these kind of like pole dancing and riding on or swings. Or in Kitten's case, sits on a swing in, in a full pantsuit. Writing in a diary. diary. <laughs> I, I, can I tell you, I would be asking for my 50 pence coin back. <laughs> yeah. Um, but of course, in, in a kind of wonderful coming full circle... Who shows up behind the other side of the peep show but Liam Neeson, her father, who is also a father, the priest. Last and, seen in the confession In the box confession, so the peep show and the confessional that's box. A total, are, that's a total, like, 180, isn't it? Oh, yes. So he's come to kind of finally confess that he is Kitten's father and also to tell her the address of Kitten's real mother, which is in the wonderful Irish enclave of Kilburn. Where my parents lived when they were younger. Did they? Oh, they, were, they were in Kilburn. Oh my god, what were they doing? They were part of the Dirty London Irish. Back really? In the 80s, yeah. What was your dad doing? He was a builder and a barman, and my mom was uh, an accounts person and worked in a bakery. Well, that'd be great when you could just do that, you know? Yeah. They probably had a great time, did they? Bomb the well, shit out of the Sean! <laughs> well, despite what my parents say about London which I think is relevant to, to the film and where Kitten's life goes, is that they came over to London for a year and they were able to live together for the first time. They were able mm. to be... Oh, my, yeah. My, my mother always says that she, she said that... When she said that when she came to London, she said it was brilliant because nobody cared who you were as long as you were willing to work hard. And I guess that is an interesting thing in the contradictions of Kitten. She's an outsider in Ireland because of her sexual identity in this very non-cosmopolitan place. But she's an outsider in London because of her ethnic identity, right? That she's kind of suspected in both places and kind of caught between these worlds. And yet also, remember in the first half we were talking about crazy things you couldn't get in Ireland? Or couldn't do in Ireland at a certain Such point? Such as abortion, yeah. contraception. Well, I mean, it just reminds me when Al was talking about his parents, you know. I was, I was thinking, oh, they could just buy a condom and nobody knew who they were. No. But I forgot. You couldn't get contraception in Ireland unless you were married and had a prescription from your doctor. Mm, yeah. Like, could you believe how ridiculous that is? Crazy. So, Sean, walk us through the last beats of the story, because actually Kitten does end up meeting her real mother. So we're told via the medium of newspaper that Margaret Thatcher has been elected <laughs> as leader of, the, leader of the Tory party, at least. So it's about 1979, maybe. And we see Kitten is in her dressing room in the peep show, powdering her face and getting ready. And she, we see a kind of a, a picture of Margaret Thatcher in the background. And she's saying, you know, I want to be... Um, conservative, you know, East Finchley kind of look, which is Margaret Thatcher's um, borough when she was a uh, member of Parliament. This is the point, I think, Kitten is definitely female identifying. Yes. Yeah. Well, she started wearing her yeah. wig most of the time. Yeah. And, yes. and, and yeah. female clothes, it's gone from androgyny to, to full-blown female yeah. identity. You're right, that's actually quite gradual. If there was more sexual gratuity, yeah. there would be stages that we could cross right. of, of, of openness and things like that. That's a fair that point. Would be, that we'd have a better, better team but because it's all kind of hidden behind the Certificate 15 that mm. we can't quite... Right, have a kiss. Yeah. <laughs> so, plowing through to the end, she meets her actual mother, and we learn that the mother is now remarried, has two young sons, and there's a poignant scene where um, Kitten, pretending to be a British telecom survey person, sits in the pleasant middle-class sitting room with her mother and the mother's children. How did you feel about that scene, Sean? I found it very affecting and very touching. When Kitten leaves, she doesn't actually say, you're my mother, there's none of this stuff. I don't know how you two are feeling. I obviously knew, having seen it before, that it wasn't going to happen. But did either of you think she was going I, to say, I'm your mother, I'm your <coughs> son, daughter? I felt, I your felt, sister, your mother, I your daughter! I felt a little bit... Uh, slap, slap, slap. I felt a little bit denied, but also I could see why you would do that. What I thought was quite heartbreaking was that the son was called Patrick. Yeah. The one had... 
And actually, it's a really interesting dramatic choice because she probably has more dialogue with that little boy who's essentially her half-brother, also named Patrick. And they have a really interesting dynamic where Patrick can sense something is up with yeah. this woman who looks like a glamorous version of Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. But they have this bond, which is actually, I think in a way, the traditional mother talking to Patrick thing, if that was overplayed, I think that would have yeah. been a bit too much. But the boyness of of the two of them looking across the divide of gender was interesting. There's a beat that I quite liked, actually, I don't know if you noticed this, when Kitten leaves and the boy follows. Yeah. The mother, there's just a scene of the mother kind of like walking back into the kitchen. Yeah. Where you're thinking, does she know? Yeah, I think she does know. Yeah. Um, from there, yeah. um, Kitten is basically beckoned home because Charlie and Erwin have fallen into some on some hard times where Erwin basically has been killed because he was giving information up. So Charlie is on her own. She's heavily pregnant, and the priest, her, Kitten's father, has taken her in. So Kitten comes back to the hometown and kind of tries to get Charlie out of this. I was about to say funk, but it's deeper than that. It's, it's like a grief. drug addiction, <laughs> pregnancy, loss of a partner. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, being kicked out of her home. Yeah, and that involves. That's where I cried actually. Aww. I just, I just, I, I did, a, I did a proper Oscar-worthy single tear Aww. down the side of the face. So Kitten arrives, looking amazing with suitcase and everything, and her father, the father, takes her upstairs to Charlie. The, the implication being, Kitten would, you know, stay in here and sleep in here and things like that. And then Kitten kind of says to him. What, where will you sleep? And he says, that doesn't matter. Yeah. And I, I, I just love that little kind of, mm. that I, the little trio they become then, yeah. which yeah. is so unusual. Yeah. yeah. We have the priest, we have the mixed race girl with the dead husband who was working for the IRA, and we have Kitten living who, in this house. Who is also the priest, illegitimate transgender <laughs> child. And I, I was thinking a lot about what you guys were saying in the first half about that notion of letting go. Letting go uh, that Ireland has let go of mm. some of these standards and rigidities that have caused yeah. no one i mean anything but harm really and liam neeson as the priest character although we don't see him go on this journey it feels like whatever mm. shame he felt yeah. from his sexual indiscretions in the past he's clearly let go to the degree that he allows these people yeah. to stay in the rectory 25 different colored baby girls four teddy bears i can understand but i don't need a prom yet kid you will. Where did you get the money? Oh, singing. <clears throat> How much is that dog in the window? The one with the waggity. Is it waggity? Oh, waggity, Charlie. Waggly. No. Wait a minute. Oh, father! Woo! How is it? You know the doggy with the tail? Is it waggly or waggity? The song. Um, Waggity, I seem to remember. Your mother never stopped singing it. Hi, Waggity Tail. Waggity. How much, much is that dog in the window? <laughs> the one with the Waggity Tail. How much is that dog in the window? Oh, Jesus Christ, Miss Holy Why doesn't the bishop do something? Bishop, the bishop we have isn't worth a damn. But then the community reacts against them and then something terrible happens. You know, if I can personalize it again, I don't know about your family, but I guess there's a certain point where everybody in the town knows that the Flanagans and the McGoverns have a gay son, you know? Spread it far and wide. And they just, <laughs> this is about the Irish mentality that I think you can, you often see it in books and you see it in films, which is that, oh God, what's everyone going to say? And after a while, it's like, shut your fucking mouth. Yeah. yeah so what you're saying <laughs> is that they, they don't go and then burn down your house. Yeah. No, they don't. They don't. In, the, in, the, in real life, it's kind of like, yeah, and, you know, but, but in this film, of course, it's a, it's a little bit more dramatic. The house is firebombed, and so is the cathedral, the church. It seems it seems excessive yeah. to me. Yeah. I, I mean, it burned down the church, the house. But where are you going to get mass? Yeah. You know, it is quite shocking that the priest has brought these people into the. Yeah, rectory. it's shocking. It's, it's not. It's it shocking. Yeah. But it, the, on that kind of notion of letting go, this that lovely moment earlier where the priest is telling the story in third person to Kitten about the father who couldn't couldn't tell his son that he loved him, and oh, yeah. Kitten, Kitten says. It's just three words, the yeah. thing in the world. But that that is so true and so Irish and yeah, so, so true. Psycho true. psychologically. The, idea that the things that are actually very easy, we find incredibly hard. And one of them is telling people that we love them. Yeah. And I thought that was it. And, that, that, and that, it seems like he's basically given up and given into the idea that you can just let go of things and yeah. be kind to people no matter who they are. Yeah. So from from the firebombing and kitten from the firebombing, they seem to be not that troubled by the fact that fine. they just burned down the entire church <laughs> yeah. and their house. Well, as um, a consequence of that, um, 
it, they decide to have Charlie's baby in the UK. Kid moves over. NHS. And yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. She mentions the welfare state. And uh, as a, by pure coincidence, uh, we find out that the, the father, whatever his name is, is uh, being transferred, being transferred to, Kilburn to Kilburn as well. Yeah. So they all kind of end up happily and they have one last encounter with um, Kitten's real mother and the little boy in the in the hospital yeah. when they're bringing the baby in for a checkup. And we're all, we're all cheery. We've, yeah. we've survived all yeah. this trauma. Yeah. We, I, th- I, I feel like the more we talk about it, I'm like, the film is actually more complex and more layered than the tone would seem. My fault of the film is that is that middle section where I felt like, where is yeah. this going? If she's driven by finding her mother, then that's whereas in the, that, those last forty five minutes, I think you can stitch together the first half hour and the last forty five minutes and have a really yeah. tight, clear emotional yeah. arc that makes a lot more sense. But in the moment, in lots of scenes, I was thinking, I'm loving this, I'm loving this, I'm loving this. But then I was. I was worn down by the running time. Yeah. I mean, I would have liked it if it was a bit grittier in some ways. Yeah. But, yeah, you listen, you can't have everything. But, but I guess it's it's an accessible film in the sense that we're perhaps, you know, steeped up to our ears in queer content every day. We're all wearing like, chaps right now. <laughs> to other people, this movie probably seems quite out there because this character is so brazenly transgressive. Well, what I would say as well is that when it comes to trans people yeah. 2006 might as well be 1966 yeah, exactly, because yeah. so much has happened in the past even five years that even I think if we watch this at the time it would probably seem a lot more transgressive yeah. than it does now because we're so used to seeing That's trans true. characters everywhere yeah. and also seeing people who don't fit into any particular box who are yeah. happy to the non-binary finish. issue yeah. so um, in our last two episodes we've dealt with um, characters who cross-dress in different ways yeah. Frankenfurter in Rocky Horror, Ed Wood in Ed Wood, played by Tim Curry and Johnny Depp, but now we have Killian Murphy. Yeah. The cheekbones are getting higher. Oh, yeah, higher oh my god. Higher. Like beautiful, it's beautiful men. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to say, I found him devastatingly beautiful. As a boy, That's as a girl. A, a, in film critique, that is not an assessment for I'm <laughs> sorry, those ringlets, those beautiful yeah. curls. Gorgeous, yeah. And the, and the way that those skin-tight costumes just... Okay, if I, if I can fucking put Brian's <laughs> dick back... I'll go, go off in your corner. Give me some of that kid. I thought that his, his, his performance was suitably ethereal, mm. and but I felt... Like, it was the same performance throughout, and I wasn't seeing the cracks that I wanted to see. Yeah. That was kind of... I felt myself connecting more to secondary characters around yeah. her than I was connecting to her and feeling like I could feel her emotions. Yeah, I agree with Alan on that. I, I think my, my issue is that I, I know myself that if I met Kitten in real life, I would find her insufferable. <laughs> that, kind, that kind of... I'm up in the air, I'm in the clouds, everything's a dream world. I would just be like, can we, can we just have the proper chats? But I, I think your analysis that, like... Actually, she had, even though she dealt with everything with this kind of Hollywood glam uh, mentality, she had been through a lot of trauma. So I wonder if actually that prickliness and difficulty is perhaps accurate to the way that kind of character would be. I, I don't, it made sense. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I, I thought that I wanted to see variation in it. I wanted to see yeah. cracks. And I thought that, that that's why the interrogation scene for me was really exciting because we could see it was this dream world being heightened because you're literally trying to exit your body because you're in so much pain. Mm. Um, and that's what I found the most interesting yeah. section. Yeah. Do we think it fell into the typical pitfalls when a straight actor plays a trans character? I'm thinking Jared Leto. I'm thinking Eddie Redmayne. I think it falls into the pitfalls of what you get when you when you go for a mainstream audience and what the how that pays off and what you lose out in the yeah. process. But ultimately, I think we all enjoyed it. But I think Killian Murphy was absolutely fabulous. Can we agree? Yeah. Yes. Like, yeah. And, and, and clearly a star-making yeah. role here. I think, I think what, the way I kind of define it is that I don't necessarily think that it was a fantastic performance for being a woman. Yeah. So I don't think Kitten wanted to be a woman. I think right. she wanted to be a, a star, a dream, yeah. A, yeah. an elfish creature. Yeah. So I think that on those levels, it was perfectly pitched. Beautiful. Well, Sean... I, I, I don't know what Alan thinks, but as far as I'm concerned, this was an excellent choice for our series. I'm Yay! very glad to have seen this. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to have seen it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, so, I'm so glad. This, was, this is what this podcast is all about. Mm-hmm. Spreading the love. Yeah. Thank you, Alan, for uh, joining us today. Not at all. Yeah, I, it was I'm great. enjoying myself. It's great. It's nice to have a buffer between Brian and me sometimes. I mean, it's, and it's, a, it's, been, and it's been tough going, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. And a buff buffer at that. A buff buffer at that. So, the arms are here. Yeah. So, Alan, where can our listeners find you if they want to find you? Um, I, uh, I'm, I, well, like, I, I'm, not your address. Twitter, well, not your, address, your, your physical address. If people want to find me, um, 
they can look on Grinder. No, if people want to find me, they can go to Twitter at Alan Flanagan. I am a writer of theatre and film and blah blah blah. I have an agent, so go on there and find my agent as well. Yeah, I mean, I'll happily appear on anyone's podcast. It's lovely. Today's proceedings. He's a podcast yeah. slut. We just fed him, and that was it. Yeah. So, uh, if you want to find us, we are at Broad Appeal Pod, and we're also individually at B A Mullen Speaks and at Sean McGovern X. Our website is www.broadappealpod.com, where you can find all our back episodes. And, ladies and gentlemen, we're sorry to say it, but there is only one more episode of our Male Gaze miniseries left. Do you know what it is, Sean? Yeah, it's just a memory quiz what is our last movie i do remember it and it's, it seems to be following this trajectory uh from the last three films and to conclude it it's dog day afternoon trajectory in what way of, of gender issues well yeah it's the whole <laughs> series is about masculinity but oh, yeah. yeah do you know where you are are you okay dog day afternoon <laughs> it brings us full circle back with al pacino in his other al pacino and he's been wandering for days in the desert he's hoppered beyond his mind <laughs> And he's and he's robbing a bank. So if yeah. you've never seen Dog Day Afternoon, join us in two weeks' time as we wrap up and we stop gazing at men before we return to the females. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. When God created a woman for me, he must have been in a beautiful mood to show the world what a woman could be. When he created a woman like you He made the sunshine right out